One of the inescapable realities of living in a fallen world is the breakdown in the family. This began, of course, with the curse after the garden fall, in which Eve's desire for her husband was twisted in a desire to manage him, to control him, and Adams responded by ruling over her, a clear recipe for conflict. And the future of sibling conflict as well was foreshadowed in Cain's murder of Abel, and so it was, by Genesis chapter 6, that the, quote, the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, end quote. Now that's a clear picture of the total depravity which defined the nature of fallen man due to sin, and reading further in Genesis 6, we read, God regretted that he made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. That's how bad it had gotten. And determined, God determined to, quote, blot out man, end quote, Genesis 6, 5 through 7. So this is the historic backdrop, the historic reality into which the family, the contemporary family, now exists. Fallen, evil, with a heart given over continually to evil. Now, that is not to say that a family cannot clean up and look pretty good. After all, the devil manifests himself as an angel of light. And a family given over to evil can also clean up and look pretty good too. Downright respectable. In fact, they can be downright respectable churchgoers. But is it any wonder then that the children raised in such environments come away with significant deficits in their soul and in their character? There's no wonder at all. The question is not whether one comes out of any family system with such deficits. Instead, the question is how severe those deficits are. For no one experiences perfect parenting. Now, there is a spectrum from 1 to 10, with 1 to 3 deemed as some as good enough to produce relatively functional adults. And 10, of course, being active evil in which the parents abuse their children and even enjoy, take glee in doing so. As mindless as that is to imagine. But the important factor is this. No one escapes coming out of childhood free from deficits. This is a terrible reality, that children are born into a world in love with evil. To come out of the one's childhood with glaring unmet develop developmental needs, then, is there at the root of what we call now codependence. And codependence is a universal condition, therefore. And again, the question is not if one is codependent, but the severity of that condition in you. Let me say that again. The question isn't whether you are codependent. The question is, is how severe is that condition in you? And the insidious nature of codependence is that it is made worse when in adulthood we seek to get early developmental needs, unmet needs, finally met through other people, places, and things. It doesn't work. Seeking to resolve childhood trauma 
by looking for perfect love and approval from people, places, and things leads only to a worsening of the condition and never a resolution. It may appear at first that it does work, especially when the initial chemical reaction in the haze of fantasy is occurring within a new romance, or maybe a job promotion, or an award, or financial success. But these things eventually fade, and we are left again with that aching, unresolved needs. For other people, places and things cannot fill these needs. And they come back, those unmet needs eventually come roaring back when the haze of fantasy fades. They come back with a new intensity. And by seeking to resolve these things the way we did, we've only made things worse. So what is the solution? Well, the solution to developmental immaturity is maturity. It's simple enough, it's profound enough in its implications, but it can be difficult. First of all, we have to acknowledge that we are suffering from developmental immaturity. Everyone is, to some degree or another. It is the cause of codependence, which is at the root, by the way, of our relational misery. But maturity, growing up, is the solution. Now, unlike psychologists, pastoral counselors like myself view the solution as spiritual. That is to say, the spiritual needs precede the mental and emotional needs. So that is not to deny the psychological effect of having unmet developmental needs. It is only to apply the remedy to the root of the problem, the taproot, if you will. That means addressing spiritual issues. Now, I must say also, and as a caveat, in many cases, the pastoral counselor is like a triage physician. You have to stop the bleeding before you can heal the injury and move on to rehab. In other words, a counselor must often address the unresolved relational trauma, fueling the chaos, the pain, and the misery before the real spiritual work can begin. And this can take a long time. Trauma doesn't respond to quick, simplistic solutions in treatment. So patience, compassion, discipline, and clarity of purpose have to be exercised. So in this series, we are addressing the spiritual taproot, which assumes, of course, then that the triage work has been successful and the injury has begun the healing process. Now, it is time to advance that healing by addressing the taproot of co-defendants, meaning the unmet needs. First, One must release other people, places, and things from any further responsibility to meet those needs. They cannot. They didn't create them. They didn't cause it. They can't cure it. It is not your spouse's responsibility, therefore, to make up for defective parenting in in your childhood. He or she did not raise you. They only married you. And they have a right to expect to have, a, have married an adult, not a wounded child or an adolescent, ad, uh, wounded adolescent. And this is true for all the other adults in your life also, especially and in including society as a whole. We have an incarceration rate in this country that's the highest in the industrial world. 
And I would suspect that most of those incarcerated are people who are not functional adults. They are out of control, adapted adolescents, and consequently, society simply disciplines them. Now, we can debate the merits or the demerits of our penal system, but the fact remains we have over 2 million people incarcerated in the United States alone. Now, recovery begins by accepting responsibility for our need to grow up and assume adult thinking and conduct with thinking in the primacy. So let me stress this. Recovery by, begins by accepting responsibility for our need to grow up and assume adult thinking and conduct. And let me stress, no one can do this for you. The good news is, if you are at the age of majority, you are an adult, and you can begin to think and act like an adult. In this moment, you can begin, and it begins by your thinking. It will take practice, but you can do so. And the first step is to change your thinking. That is to say, according to Romans 12:2, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. End quote. Recovery begins, therefore, in the mind, that is, in how we think, and how we think is affected by what we feed our minds. It doesn't begin with an experience, it begins with how we think. The experience will follow. We all want to live our spiritual life out on an existential reality, but it all begins with how we think. Now, the most essential need for every human being is for peace peace with God, and peace within our souls and bodies, which will translate, of course, into peace within our relationships. This is what and where, what, the what and wherefore of the gospel of Christ, the making of peace. The gospel itself is often called in the Bible the gospel of peace. So as important and pressing as our human needs are, the greatest human need is for peace with God peace within ourselves and with others, even with creation as a whole. And the gospel is wholly sufficient to provide all of these. Now, <clears throat> in this series, I have begun to talk to you about shalom, peace, what the Bible prescribes as the peace of God, the peace that is the inheritance of all the children of God. In, Hebrews, in the Hebrew word language in the Old Covenant, we learned that it's mentioned over 237 times. It's a theme throughout Scripture. The Greek equivalent of shalom is used 92 times in the New Testament. We talked last time about Isaiah 26.3, how that you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. We talked about how the fact in the greetings in the New Testament, many times Paul began his letter with grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is not only a grant, an inheritance, a gift, it is a theme of Scripture to assure you that it truly is God's will that you know peace. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, we refer to the fact that it is the bond of peace, the bond of unity, the, the source of unity. 
In fact, let me just read that real quick here. He says, um, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit is the bond of peace, a peace that we share as Christians. I mentioned to you also Philippians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, a very popular uh, section of Scripture, but the, uh, a section that is very rarely lived out except in concept. For instance, in verse 4, Philippians chapter 4, we read, It rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your considerate spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we have this wonderful promise, this wonderful grant, this wonderful uh, expression of God's will for his people, that we walk in peace, in shalom, in the Greek equivalent of irene, meaning safety, well-being, peace, favor, health, wholeness, completeness, serenity non-circumstantial contentment. These are the, this is the gift that you have in your union with Christ. So, what we're looking at then is we're looking at in this series as to what it is. I explained that to you last time. And today I want to talk with you about for whom this shalom, this peace, is meant. So let's take a look at that now by turning to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. There was a man having been sent from God, whose name was John, beginning with verse 6. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, so that he all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were, who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. End quote. What I want to tell you today is that shalom, this gift of well-being, non-circumstantial contentment and serenity, wholeness, completeness, a sense of rest and quietness, belongs to God's people, meaning belongs to the regenerate, those who have been born of the Spirit. It is your birthright, your spiritual birthright, to know shalom, to know peace, contentment, rest, quietness of spirit and body. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? 
That is your gift. But it belongs only to those who have been born of God. Now let's look at this text a little closer. First of all, we discover that John the Baptist, being the forerunner of the Messiah, he came as to bear witness to the light. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. Now the light is in uh, capital form, capital L, in the Legacy Standard Bible here. And that just means that it's, it's personified. It's, it's the person of Jesus, that the Word of God made flesh. And the fact that light has come into the world implies that there's darkness in the world, serious darkness. And Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the light. He is the light that takes us out of the forest of a fallen world. But here's the insanity that he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. That it gives you an idea of the darkness of that insanity. How great is the darkness that the creation does not even know its creator. They've turned their back on their creator to the point where they do not know him. Even as he takes up human flesh and dwells among them, he remains the light of God into the world, but the world did not know him. I don't know that we can emphasize that sense of alienation any more than in that one statement, except for the fact in the next statement. He came to what was his own, meaning the Jewish nation, and those who were his own did not receive him. So it's even made worse than he came into the world. He came, the creator came into his creation and the creation did not know him. But it's highlighted, it's emphasized, it's made more stark by the fact that he came to his own through to whom he had previously made self-revelation through Moses, through the law, and set up the temple worship through the Sabbath, through the, through the feasts, through the whole Jewish uh, uh, structure that was a, 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 a genuine revelation pointing to the Messiah who was to come. And yet, they did not receive him. The creation did not know him. The... Uh, in general, and his own people, to whom he had previously given self-revelation through Moses, did not receive him. Instead of seeing that revelation, the revelation of the law and the temple worship, as a, uh, a pointer, as a foreshadow of him who was to come, they made it something in and of an end unto itself. And isn't that what we do with religion sometimes? Isn't that what we do with denominations? Isn't that what we do with our theological systems? Instead of being those things that exalt Christ, instead of being those things that are centered on Christ, they become an end unto themselves. And they become actually blinders to the biblical Christ. So we have this incredible state of things. The world did not know him and his own people who possessed genuine revelation, the only people on the planet, 
who had genuine revelation of the true God, did not receive him. That's the insanity. That's the depth and the character and the nature of the darkness of the world into which the light has come. But then in verse 12, we say we read this, this great adversative, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So what happened here? There were many who did receive him. But as many as received him, to those who received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now what happened? Were, were these people simply more prone to be good religious people? Were they of greater character, inherent character, than the other people? Were they just better people? What happened that these people received him where the others didn't? That's the question. And it's answered for us in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The peace that passes all understanding, the non-circumstantial serenity that is yours as birthright is because you've been born of God. That's what we mean by regeneration. You've been born of the Spirit. And this is a work of God. It is a sovereign work of God. Listen now carefully. Regeneration precedes faith. The regenerating work of the sovereign grace of God precedes saving faith. Faith itself being a gift. So I, what I want you to understand today is that the reason we enter into illicit relationships or boundaries relationships, the reason we have so much chaos and pain and misery in our relationships at times, even as believers, is because we are not well informed in our minds about the need that we have to be whole in ourselves. We don't need other people, places, and things to be whole people. We are given the gift of relationships. We have communities. We have families. Those are all wonderful things to enhance our human experience. But our wholeness comes from God and from God alone. And every time, every single time, it's never different. When we begin to take those core needs for wholeness and serenity and peace and completeness, we and fulfillment within us, and we began to look to other people, places, and things for that which which only God can give. We only make our situation worse. As I've said before, you may be able to initially enter into a haze of fantasy. You may be able to enter into a haze of the bright, the brightness of the light of a new romance or some kind of temporal success in your work or achievements. But all of that is fading. All glory is fading. All human glory is fading. And so what I want for you is to be able to understand that the shalom that is yours by birthright is a spiritual birthright. It belongs to the regenerate. 
and regeneration is something that God brings about through his sovereign work of grace, through the gospel. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of uh, not of the blood, in other words, you can't inherit it, nor of the will of the flesh, not something that the flesh can produce in you, nor of the will of man. It isn't something that you just choose to be by free will. But of God. God takes the initiative. God produces regeneration. Now this was the shock that came about in John chapter 3 when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless Jesus, uh, unless, excuse me, one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John chapter 3, verse 3. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a teacher of Israel. He was a man of religious standing. No doubt, he was likely a good man. No doubt he had a lot of personal merit. No doubt he was a good Jew, a good observant Jew, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He had it all going on for him. He probably had a good standing amongst other people, maybe even amongst his peers. And he comes to Jesus as a spokesman for the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders of Israel who had examined the initial case of Jesus and determined and conceded that he was a prophet. And so Jesus says, okay, then listen to me. (laughs) Basically, that's what's happening here. You consider me to be a prophet, so then listen to me. I have something to say. And that is, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born of God. You can't just rely on religious observances. Nor can you rely on some perverse theology that says that whether or not you are born of the Spirit whether or not you are born or, or you are saved is up to you by some uh, sovereign choice of your own. Listen, I just told you in John chapter 1, the natural state of humanity, the natural state of humanity is to not know him and to not receive him. That's the most natural state of fallen humanity. Consequently, it takes a sovereign intervening work of grace by the Spirit through the Gospel to bring about the new birth, the new regenerate birth, whereby the gift of faith is imparted and you have Jesus as your object. You place your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let me turn and give you one more text today. Let's look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, just to kind of emphasize this. And you were dead in transgressions and sins. The NIV said, as for you, meaning chapter 1, God God lays out everything that he has done for us on on our behalf in his Son. All spiritual blessings, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And then Paul lays out the glorious truths of what God has sovereignly done to bring about his purpose to have a people who reflect his glory as was fulfilled in his Son, and that we are now included in that. And that is not something that we evoked. It's not something that we earned. It's not something we can and can earn. It's not something that we can gain and lose. It is something that God does in us. It is permanent. It is a work of God. We are born of God. Now, it is entirely possible, let me stress, it is entirely possible to be very religious, to be very observant, to be very uh, involved in your church, be very involved in your Bible study group, and all these things, and not be a regenerate person. In fact, I would say today it is the most common state. And that is because most people don't understand regeneration. They don't understand. They are familiar with the... A trivialized version of what it means to be born again, meaning that you say a prayer at some point in your life and you start attending church and you avoid the grosser moral sins and you identify with Christian causes and therefore you're, quote, born again. But that's not the biblical standard. Let's read further in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler, ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all of us, it's a universal condition, folks. All of us. I don't care if you were raised in a religious home or not. I don't care if you're fourth and fifth uh, generation in your denomination or local church. I don't care if you have ordination papers. We all began from this position, among whom we also all formally conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But then we have this wonderful statement in verse 4, just like we had in John chapter 1, verse 12, we have God's intervention. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, morally, spiritually dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is something that God has done. It is not something that you accomplished. It is not something that you put into action. It is not something that you made God do for you because you had uh, acted in faith. Your very faith is a preceding work of God. So we must get the proper perspective on this. If we expect to have healthy, loving relationships, 
we must understand the taproot needed there is that is to have peace with God, peace with ourselves, within ourselves, and peace, therefore, within our relationships. And we have to have these things in order, biblical order. And the biblical order for Jewry generation is that it is a work of a sovereign God by his, according to grace, by his spirit, by which he raises us from a state of spiritual death and makes us alive together with Christ. Let's go back to our text, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. That's the second time he has said this in these uh, several verses. And what we understand, of course, about biblical interpretation is when the Holy Spirit repeats something, he's doing what? He's emphasizing it. So we need to emphasize the fact that Paul is saying, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. So are we clear? Is there any doubt left in your mind? <laughs> Regeneration is of God. Let's back up. Healthy relationships belong to those who are whole in themselves. And that wholeness in ourselves, that shalom, that irene, belongs to those who are regenerate. And the regeneration is something that is the work of God. It is the gift of God. No one is in Christ because they suddenly became worthy or they suddenly became um, people who just chose Christ or chose to become Christians. Now, we were all in the state of darkness, serious darkness, spiritually, morally dead when God intervened into our life. Verse 9, not of works so that no one may boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We are not our own workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by works, autonomous good works, autonomous actions on our part. We're saved by the mercy of God. And once we are in Christ, by that sovereign work of grace, once we're united with Christ, then God takes up residence within us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit takes up residence within us, and that life of God will manifest in our lives as good works. Good works have to do with how we love God and how we treat others. Healthy, loving relationships are the natural consequence of being united to Christ. But we must understand the biblical order and the biblical theology behind peace with God, peace within ourselves, and peace with others. So what I've done today is I've just introduced you and reminded some of you of the fact that you must be born of God. The shalom that is yours is yours by spiritual birthright which means you must be birthed into it. You must be born of God. You can't just simply do it by being religious. You can't do it by earning it. Now, it's very important to understand this because throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels especially, 
Jesus is stressing this, and he, en- he encounters a very religious people. Remember, John 1, um, 10 through 12 tells us, through 13, tells us that there were those who were his own, his own people, the Jewish people who did not receive him. Perhaps there's no better place to, to speak of that except in John chapter 8, verses um, 31 through 59. There was a place in here where Jesus uh, is addressing people who had even confessed him and said, yes, we believe in you. And he said, if you abide in my word, then are you truly my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Well, they answered him, We are Abraham's seed, and never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, the proper response to Jesus' teaching was to say yes and amen. We will abide in your word, and though therefore prove ourselves to be your disciples. But instead, they objected. They had another ground, another basis by which they believed that they were right with God, and that was that they were Abraham's seed. And listen to verse 37. He tells them later, I know that you are Abraham's seed, yet you are seeking to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, and therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered him and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham. But now you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. Now, why am I saying all this? Because I want you to understand that simple, even confessing to believe in Jesus does not ensure that you are regenerate. How do you know that you're regenerate? You know because you um, abide in his word. If God were your father, you would love me. You would abide in his word and you would have a quality of love for Jesus. Not a perfect love, not a a lot. It doesn't have to be quantitative, but it has to be a qualitative, genuine love for Jesus. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand, verse 43, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Now, stick with me. You are of your father, the devil, he says in verse 44. He's speaking to the Jewish leaders of Israel, the teachers of Israel, those with whom the deposit of God's self-revelation in Moses in the law and the temple worship has been deposited as stewards. These were not rank atheistic pagans. These were the people who should have known. And yet Jesus is telling them, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. 
Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. They would believe the lie. They had bought into the lie. They were holding tight to the law, to the lie, I should say, excuse me, to the lie that by being in possession of the law, that they were okay. They didn't have to be just hearers of the law, but they didn't have to be doers of the law. They just had to have it. They just had to possess it. They were children of Abraham. They were, they were right with God by heritage. But we read in John 1, 12 and 13, didn't we? Those who were born not of the will of the flesh, nor of blood, nor of the will of man. Regeneration is something that God does to us, if you will. It isn't something that we reach out and grab on our own. It isn't something we can claim because we have religious heritage, or that we're baptized, or that we're regular church attenders. Now, stay with me just a few more minutes here. Which of you convicts me of sin? I speak the truth. Why do you not believe me? Verse 47. Listen carefully. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Let me stop there. That was, uh, by the way, verse 47 of chapter 8 of John. What we've learned today is that to be born of God means to be born of the Spirit, to be regenerate. And regeneration precedes saving faith. Faith itself being a gift of God. We know that we are regenerate because we hold his word. We abide in Jesus' teaching. And that we love him. We have a quality of love, however imperfect, however stumbling. It isn't about quantity. It isn't about ecstasy. It isn't about mystical experience. It's about having a quality of love, that genuine love for him. And abiding in his word, hearing his word. He says it then again. Let me say it again in verse 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. These people were good Jewish people, good leaders of Israel by all appearances. But Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. See, there's the contrast. This moral ambiguity that has become so popular in our culture is not biblical. Let me say that again. Moral ambiguity. As hard as that word is to say sometimes. Moral ambiguity is not biblical. Jesus makes it vividly clear here that you are either of your father, the devil, or you've been born of God, and there's nothing in between. There's only two statuses that you can be. you either of the realm of the flesh or the realm of the spirit. So what I've worked to do today is to help you understand that to develop healthy, loving relationships means that you must grow up. We must mature. And we must do that by understanding that our wholeness, our completeness, our shalom, our peace comes from God. 
peace with him, peace within ourselves, and peace with others. It's only when we are at peace with God through regeneration and faith in Jesus Christ, by grace are you saved, that we then are have this gift, this grant, this wonderful gift. It is not something that you ascend to. It doesn't belong just to the ascended spiritual mature tour among us, no, or, or to the clergy. It belongs to all of us, to the least among us. God wants the very least among us. The person who's only been in Christ for a few short minutes, God wants that person, that spiritual infant, to know shalom, to know genuine peace. And it comes to those who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, who now have been born of God, who are of God, and stand in direct contrast to those who oppose Jesus in chapter 8 of John. Well, I pray that you'll consider these things, you'll meditate on these things, you'll um, pray about these things, you'll read these texts over and over again, let it sink way down deep into your heart and mind, and rejoice in the fact that you can have peace. And by having peace with God and peace within yourselves, you can truly have peace with others as well.